0: Also remember, when you buy Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. So find Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life, on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: Hi, I speak English and French.
2: Ciao, italiano e inglese.
0: A few days back, I was tired of wrecking my brain around translation and languages. So I decided I wanted to relax and watch a funny movie. I had a sudden craving for a comedy with a zing of sci-fi. Until I tuned in on exactly the thing I was looking for.
3: Ah,
0: some relax. Finally.
1: The is small. It was yet the Yellow
0: latest Leechstone movie adaptation of the, the 1978 BBC's radio drama, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I watched it with unprecedented interest, and I soon realized that, far from being deflected from languages, I found myself thrown right back at them, pondering over the concept of the babblefish. For those who don't remember it, the babblefish is a small, bright yellow fish you pop into your ear to translate any language. And I do mean any language, even those it has never heard of. I was suddenly taken with the idea of being able to instantaneously translate between all languages. And I began to wonder, is that even possible? Welcome to Atlas Lingue, the show where we talk about languages, about the joyful, the challenging, and the joyfully challenging aspects of everyday communication. I'm Luis Lopez, and today we're going to try and find the Babblefish. Not after taking a dive into a James Joyce-like stream of consciousness. Apologies in advance, that's what watching the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy triggers in a language lover. So bear with me. Before the pandemic hit, I visited several countries, and I always wished I could communicate smoothly with anyone I met along the way. And in those moments, I began to think that sooner or later, technology will get so sophisticated that we'll simply talk with others by installing a translation chip in our head or something. I've always imagined the future world as one without barriers, where everyone truly understands each other. A world without translation. So instead of enjoying the ironic banter of the movie, my mind started conjuring up a series of questions. How close are we to making the fantasy of the babblefish come true? How would it work? And if it could, What would happen to the people who earn their living as translators and interpreters? But then I realized maybe we don't need to wait. Because I remember that someone dreamt this dream long ago and came up with a creative solution a lingua franca called Esperanto. This is Federico Gobbo, an Italian professor at the University of Amsterdam. Whose work stands at the crossroads between artificial intelligence and linguistics? Esperanto was
2: written before to be spoken. So it was conceived as a project by a single uh, person, actually a man, a Jew, uh, Ludwig Leger Zamenhof, by the end of the 19th century in the Russian Empire in uh, the nowadays Poland. So he was a bilingual Russian uh, Yiddish and he was really a polyglot. He knew. Uh, 10 languages, more or less.
0: He explained to us how Zamenhof became fascinated by the idea of creating a tolerant world, free from the horrors of war. A few biographical details will help us understand the idea behind the creation of Esperanto. (music) Zamenhof was a Jew in Poland at the time of Russia's pogroms. Back then, Anti-Semitism was reaching new heights, and he dreamt of a day when people could come together. As our world conflicts and wars are usually based on cultural issues, he thought that the lack of communication is one of the main reasons for which people fight. But what ingredients did he use to create Esperanto? First of all, all uh,
2: human languages uh, have roots. So even if you want to invent a language, from scratch, if it's, uh, it's uh, let's say targeted to humans, it has it should have some roots in existing languages. Esperanto is based on uh, on uh, other languages, Latin and ancient Greek, uh, Romance languages, uh, Germanic languages, and Slavic languages at most. And these are like uh, the etymological background of uh, of Esperanto. Like for example, for Italian, it is Latin
0: and Greek. If you think about it, Esperanto is even more of a melting pot than New York is. The lexicon has a Roman influence, while the sentence structure and conjugations resemble those of Slavic languages.
2: All the the structure of Esperanto is planned, is invented, is made in order to make people acquire it clearly, regardless of their background. It has a kind of very transparent and crystal clear grammar. If you want a language to be successful, you have to put into the language an ideology. And in the case of Esperanto, it was a very strong ideology by the founder.
0: The ideology he refers to is that if we all shared one language, we would no longer fight. In fact, the name Esperanto can be translated as one who hopes. Esperanto was supposed to be, quote, a neutral tongue, which is to say that it wouldn't be attached to any culture, nation, or ideology. This language would not make students change their point of view, and wouldn't make them distant from their own native culture.
2: Let's say I'm Italian, we're French, and we speak Esperanto. And uh, if I have a way of speech or something that uh, is uh, international enough, or uh, it is, let's say, a good Italian contribution, you will accept it in Esperanto. The feeling of freedom that Esperanto speakers experience all the time. They feel uh, to be in power with the language. They feel uh, free to do that without uh, having a heavy um, literary tradition, uh, if they come from uh, a big language background, like uh, French, English or uh, German or Italian, for example. Or on the other side, if uh, they come from uh, small languages and they they wanted to have uh, an international experience and uh, they can have it. Of course, it's a, a strange experience in the sense that it is international, but it's also small.
0: Because Esperanto is no one's first language, it is unlikely that any given speaker would feel disadvantaged when communicating with other Esperantists.
2: So it's really kind of a village, a global village, because people know each other. In many cases, if you go to the literary track of, of the language, but you can have uh, correspondents and friends from uh, from India, Iceland, or Japan in Esperanto, in for Esperanto. So
0: this is uh, quite amazing. As naive as it may sound, Zamenhof received praise from the intellectual elites back then, even from Tolstoy. The language survived two world wars and the persecution of a czar, who thought it was too revolutionary a concept to let it live on. But even though the language was designed to be easy to learn and pronounce, it has been relegated to only a few thousand speakers around the world. Unfortunately, Federico is literally right – it is a global village. And nowadays, I can probably use it only if I travel to neutral Morisnit, a small principality between Belgium and Germany, the only place in the whole world that declared it its official language. So, Esperanto still exists, but why has it failed to become a widespread universal language? Universal language is
2: uh, quite an ambiguous uh, expression. If you think about the world language, well, what I can say is that the language that were spread internationally were always the language of the strongest. So think about uh, how many Latin roots uh, are in uh, European languages. This is because of the Roman Empire. than all the languages that came afterwards. Uh, if we only uh, focus uh, ourselves on the Western angle of the world, were were spread because of political power. And of course, English, uh, especially after the Second World War. So that's, that's why. And what is most, let's say, the approximation of really world language is English, admittedly, because this is a, a unique phenomenon. We have more second-language speakers
0: than first-language speakers in the world of English. Well, this is what colonialism does. So, if the implementation of a planned, universal language hasn't been successful, maybe machine learning and AI can do better. Artificial intelligence. But I've always wondered, how does machine learning work? How can computers learn to translate? To understand a bit more, we've called up Lori Levin. She teaches computational linguistics at Carnegie Mellon University and the Language Technologies Institute. As I expected, the answer wasn't that easy for someone like me, who doesn't speak IT jargon. Spoiler alert, it all starts with computers simply learning how languages work.
3: Now, the structure is learned from a lot of data. And it's learned by neural networks. And they give the neural networks a lot, a lot of data, you know, a lifetime's worth of data, or at least a childhood's worth of data. And the neural networks learn something. You don't really know what they learn, but because a lot of what they learn is latent meaning it's hidden inside the machinery.
0: Wait, wait, what are neural networks, in simple terms?
3: The neural network has things that are perhaps a model of neuron that get activated by certain inputs.
0: Oh, okay, so they work a little bit like the neurons in our brain. But machines also use probable combinations of words to compute probabilities. But brace yourself for a dystopian present.
3: There are some people who do experiments on whether neural networks have learned the same kind of structure and grammar that humans have. They kind of do without being told. Not exactly the way that linguists structure as linguists know it, but they learn a lot without being told.
0: A machine that feeds itself data sounds a bit scary to me. But hey, it's for the greater good. And, forgive the pun, but if this translates into machine translation, I'm all for it. I wonder whether her research will pave the way for the invention of an actual babblefish, a magic tool that lets everybody out there communicate, with no clunky translation dictionaries. Except, The reality is that neural networks have more data in some languages than others.
3: English has lifetime's worth of data that the networks can train on. But other languages might only have a few hours of recording, say it's an indigenous language or a language that's spoken in a remote village somewhere. So then the neural net doesn't have as much data to train on. So then there's an area of research on Getting neural nets to learn from less data and also transferring from languages where you have more data to languages where you don't have enough data. So, those would be called transfer models or multilingual models. So, you can train the neural net to learn sort of what's languagey about languages that are near or related to the one that you want to translate and then use some of the parameters from those neural networks to analyze or translate the one that you didn't have enough data for.
0: It looks like machine learning will protect languages that are less spoken, or even on the verge of extinction.
3: Some of my colleagues have worked on the Mixtec language in Mexico, and they have gotten very high accuracy for speech translation. And the reason that that's important is that languages are endangered and there's a a strong move towards globalization. Preserving languages and documenting them as they exist now is very, very important. Most of it never gets transcribed. And if it never gets transcribed, that means it never gets studied to see what structures the languages have and what new things it's telling us about human language and what old things it's confirming about human language. And also, if it's not transcribed, it may be less useful for later generations because it it may become harder for them to understand as the later generations know less and less of the language or or the language evolves. I
0: never thought about it that way. I always assumed AI translation would help me travel and smoothen out differences. Turns out technology can actually do
3: so much more. It's important for documentation of the languages. And if the community is committed to revitalization, technology can be very important to them. Then when they come to the computer scientists and they say, our community is committed to revitalizing our language, we need a tool that does this, like uh, word completion so that we can send text messages or an audio storybook or an audio tour of the ethnobotany of our region. Then we can help provide the tools that they need for revitalization.
0: Sounds like the possibility of a Babelfish is as close as ever, even for languages that are endangered, isn't it?
3: I think babblefish can adapt to instantly learn a language it hasn't seen before. I don't know when that will happen. <laughs> so you can certainly build a system, but the thing about instantly adapting to a language that you've never heard before, like you land on another planet and the battlefish instantly learns the language after hearing only a few words. Um, what it doesn't explain is how it knows what it means. Of course,
0: machine learning needs data to feed on, and we can't expect to be able to interpret a language we don't know anything about. Ever watch the movie Arrival? The one where a linguist is enlisted by the United States Army to discover how to communicate with extraterrestrial aliens who have arrived on Earth? That movie also gave me food for thought, because none of it would have happened if they had a babblefish. So, after a little research, I found that new devices are getting closer to replicating this fantasy. In fact, A Japanese company seems to be coming real close. And their babblefish is called Pocket
1: Talk. Here's how it works. So it's a single button, push to talk. So once you press a button, you can speak for up to 30 seconds. Once you're done with that and release the button, the translation immediately starts coming up. This is Paul Malmquist, the head of business development for North America,
0: Europe, Middle East, and Africa at Pocket Talk.
1: Then it will give you back a voice, um, and different voices for different languages.
0: This is very close to what I was looking for, except I won't be able to speak to my Martian friends yet. But will it allow me to communicate accurately with friends who speak a less international language?
1: We use multiple translation... Uh, engines from around the world to provide the best accuracy for the language that you've chosen single single translation engines can't get every single language in the right frame so we use multiple translation uh, engines um, and it goes all through the cloud so it once once you're connected either via Wi-Fi or via cell service um, that translation basically goes through the cloud into the translation engine from the translation engine back through the cloud to your device itself, and almost instantly.
0: But what if you don't have reliable internet access? I fear this may widen the digital divide in developing countries even more, because I must admit the concept sounds tantalizing. A device that breaks communication barriers, not only for travel junkies like me, but also for patients in hospitals, or clients, or workers.
1: Breaking down a language barrier is one of the most important things that people can actually do to have a conversation. Um, It becomes more of a one-to-one relationship. If you think about it, maybe we'll talk about like a healthcare setting. If a person may be in a hospital and you think about it this way, you know, they have to use a translation line or a third-party interpreter or maybe they're using a, a family member. But if a nurse or a doctor can actually have a one-to-one communication with somebody, um, the rapport definitely goes up.
0: Well, you could argue that Google Translate and several apps installed on our phones do that already... Tomate el palo.
1: Take the stick
0: but we should admit that these translations come off as a bit awkward. There's a certain lack of accuracy there, which these kinds of devices claim to overcome.
1: One language may be at a 60% accuracy rating right now, but over time, as more people use that translation engine and we continues to correct um, the 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 words, or the slang, or the dialect, or anything else that can go into a language, um, it improves over time.
0: But not all that glitters is gold. Will translations ever be 100% precise with artificial intelligence? No, because even in-person interpreters, or people that are translating for other people, are themselves
1: interpreting they are not completely accurate a teacher may say i like having your kids in school and if that if she said that and it translates from spanish it would come across as i like having your goats in school
0: hey my goats happen to be very well behaved thank you very much jokes aside i thought i'd found nemo um, the babblefish, but it still lacks that human touch Only humans are able to understand the nuances in the messages we're receiving, at least for now. And our linguist, Federico Gobbo, seems to agree. Translators and interpreters are probably not going to lose their job to AI. Artificial uh,
2: intelligence uh, put uh, machine translation for free or almost for free in the internet. So you can have this uh, illusion that uh, you don't need translators anymore.
3: Google Translate is now activated.
2: But if you want to reach a good quality and you want to have a certified translation, you need human translators. Machine translation relies on data and relies on training data at first. If you go to popular Website like Google Translate and others, they are not specialized, they are general purpose. The untrained translators will lose the job, but uh,
0: professional translators will be more and more uh, important. So neither machine learning nor translators are going to disappear. Let's put on our futurist hat for a moment. How will this play out, say, in the next few decades?
2: the future is uh, in collaboration between humans and machines, because uh, machine translation per se uh, makes a lot of errors, errors that uh, are corrected easily by a human being. And on the other hand, a human being is very slow in uh, certain tasks, like retrieving
0: dictionaries and so on. So human and machine translators aren't competing. Rather, they're making each other's jobs easier. Therefore the only true threat to their existence would be a common language. But after everything we've heard, I start to wonder if that's even possible. It didn't work for Esperanto, and even now that English is arguably our lingua franca, it doesn't seem like translators will be made redundant anytime soon.
2: Well, uh, if you think about the fact that there is a kind of common language which is English, uh, translators are still here, so I will not really have any fear of that. Because, I mean, there are uh, 7,000 languages in the world, and many of them are severely endangered, so this is another priority that we should address, actually. But uh, we will need more and more professionally trained human translators.
0: Well, wouldn't you know it, the real Babblefish was the translators we professionally trained along the way. Anyhow, it looks like my hitchhiker's trip to the galaxy is over. And have I found my babblefish? Well, almost. Knowing that I can rely on a little device to speak to almost everybody wherever I travel, work, or go to the doctor is kind of nice. Unfortunately, it wouldn't work if I wanted to have a conversation with Wapishana speakers in Guyana or Tipai speakers in the United States. And it definitely won't work with aliens. And throughout my trip, I discovered that a world without translation isn't possible. But that's exactly what makes it so rich. Because a world where everybody spoke the same language, whether it's the utopian dream of a visionary doctor in Russia, or any other form of communication, would miss out on a lot of the cultural nuance and diversity in language. And frankly, that's what makes us human. Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue. If you're new to the series, catch up with our previous episodes. I'm Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. Special thanks to our guests, Federico Gobbo, Lori Levin, and Paul Malmquist. Production and theme by Studio 80. Sound design by Chiara Santella. Senior producer, Glizia Sala. Assistant producers, Haley Choi, Leo Ibañez, Leia Zipstein, and Clark Marchese. For more information on Atlas Lingue, a Studio 80 original series and podcast, visit ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ochenta Podcasts. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country. And we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The Pulso Podcast is a Latina-hosted, latina produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star-Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.